This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. All right. Well, um, thank you for joining us tonight. If this is your first time tuning into RUF, um, we're really glad that you've, you've joined us and hope that it's a blessing to you as you um, worship with us. And I'm going to put this down. And uh, hear, from, uh, hear from God's words, what we're about to do. So one of the unique joys and privileges of being a parent is teaching my children how to cuss. Um, one of the things we tell our kids is that words are like knives, and they're wonderful tools, but if you use them incorrectly, you can hurt yourself or hurt others. And so as our kids grow, there are some words that they know that they're not to use, and um, there are other words that they, as they get older, we tell them it's okay, and having these conversations with them about cussing as they learn these different words. But at a very young age, they begin to cuss, or rather they begin to curse, Leo and Mary Landon, my older two kids, Leo's nine, Mary Landon's almost seven, um, when they were little, they would curse using the words their mom taught them. So their curses were things like, oh my, and oh my word, and golly Moses. My wife's from 1950. That's the story of that one. Um, George has just started cursing, and he's my three-year-old. And the other morning, we were in the den, and he was trying to get a toy to work, and he couldn't. And in his frustration, I heard him say, dag nabbit. <laughs> I love that. Um, it turns out he learned this from Beaver and Winnie the Pooh, and the older kids have been encouraging it in him. Um, so his go-to curse word is dagnabbit. And I was talking about this with Mary Clark, and she want, reminded me that he will also call anyone a stinker. So those are, those are George's curse words. Um, and this reveals something about the human experience, that as humans, we need language to articulate the reality that things aren't the way they're supposed to be even for a three-year-old expressing frustration that the world is broken. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and the Bible agrees with this, and it gives this a name. It calls it sin. Francis Spufford is a British author, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Unapologetic, why, despite everything else, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. It's a great book, and in his book, he offers readers a new word for sin, claiming that sin doesn't mean much to anyone anymore. And he shows us how important good curse words are. His name for sin is, and I'm going to edit this for um, Zoom, RUF, or just for RUF in general. His, his word for sin is the human propensity to F things up. So he's British, so he can get away with things like unedited, putting that in a Christian book. And he says he uses this phrase because sin is not just our tendency to stumble and to screw up by accident, but it's our active inclination to break stuff. And by stuff, he means promises, relationships that we care about, our own well-being and others, and not just with the people we know, but we're complicit in injustice around the world. And the human propensity to F things up is bad news. And like all bad news, it's not very welcome, especially if you let yourself take seriously the implication that we actually want the destructive things that we do, that they are not just accidents that keep happening to poor little us, but are part of our nature, that we are truly cruel as well as truly tender, that we're truly loving and at the same time truly likely to take a quick, nasty little pleasure in hurting those we love or contribute to the hurt of those we've never met across the grub. 
This is what Spufford is getting at, and that his little phrase, the human propensity to F things up, is much closer to the way that the Bible talks about sin than the way that our culture does. And I give you all this by way of introduction, because tonight we're going to be talking about injustice. And in the Bible, injustice is the social outworking of our sin against God. Justice has been a hot word in 2020. Lots of calls for justice and talks about justice and questioning frameworks for justice. Lots of people are asking questions, and they should. What is justice? Who gets to define it? Where can I find it? And tonight, we're going to look together at the book of Amos and see how God makes sense of justice and injustice and what we're to do about it. So this semester at Large Group, what we're doing right now, Large Group, we're reading and discussing the Minor Prophets together. The Minor Prophets are 12 small books in the Old Testament. The reason they're called minor is because they're small. And we're reading through one Minor Prophet each week, and we're talking about that Minor Prophet and studying it together. We're taking uh, what's going on in the whole book and then uh, focusing on a key passage from that prophet. And the reason that we're studying the Minor Prophets is because they are life-challenging. They can actually change the way we live and they're graphic. They contain both the scariest warnings and also the most beautiful promises in the whole Bible. And there are these quick, vivid snapshots, rather than a long, boring documentary, quick, vivid snapshots. That's why the title of our sermon series is Postcards from the Edge. And when we get to some of the more difficult parts, which we will tonight, I want you to remember that all of the Bible contains God's Word for us. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days, so the Old Testament, including the minor prophets, these were written for our instruction, that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. This is saying that God gives us difficult books, like the minor prophets, to instruct us, to encourage us, and to give us hope, often when these seem like the least likely places that we would receive hope. So this week we're going to be looking at the book of Amos. Amos is the third minor prophet in your Bible. Historically, he actually is probably the first minor prophet, though. He wrote these nine chapters around 750 B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. So quick Old Testament history lesson. In 1000 B.C., the 12 tribes of Israel were united under King David into the united monarchy. And then 70 years later, after he died and King Solomon died, they were divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Amos, this prophet, he was a shepherd from a place called Tekoa, which is a little bit south of Jerusalem. And he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So just like Hosea, he was prophesying to the northern kingdom. Same people right about the same time. And at this time, in the mid-700s B.C., it was a rare time of peace and prosperity for Israel, but it was really only a false calm before a terrible storm. The main theme of Amos is injustice, the present practice of injustice and the future cost to Israel. Now, the northern kingdom had grown, had grown wealthy, lazy, and greedy. The rich 1% were oppressing the poor 99% into starvation and slavery. And Amos tells us that God is preparing to come to come in like a charging bear and strike like a coiled snake. And that's, what exact, that's exactly what happens less than 30 years from when Amos was prophesying. The superpower Assyria swept in and wiped out Israel, utterly crushing them. So we're going to look at a key passage in Amos where the prophet describes Israel's injustice and its consequences, all the while making a passionate plea to us 
I'm going to read to us from Amos 5. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can open it, there, open it to there. You go to the Psalms in the middle and then um, thumb to the right. It's just past Hosea, um, right after Hosea and Joel, but not quite to Matthew. So we're going to read Amos 5, verses 4 through 15. It's also going to be on your screen. Amos 5, verses 4 through 15, and then 18 through 27. So I'm going to read to us from the English Standard Version. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Amos 5, starting in verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls forth the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, before you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain of him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then verse 18 through 27. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile in Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After hearing this passage, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? confusing, long, what in the world is going on. But if we got together as a group and we tried to summarize what's going on in Amos 5, I think we'd all agree that it's about judgment. And this is the word that we'd pick if we took time to read the entire book of Amos together. Judgment is also the reason why many preachers won't touch this book, let alone the minor prophets. After all, who wants to be associated with the God of judgment, especially on a college campus? Right now, there are few worse things you could be accused of than being accused of being judgmental. That will get you canceled, which you must admit is ironic. And even if you are fearful of being labeled judgmental, 
I think that we all actually want a God of judgment. Here's what I mean. Vince Gilligan, who is the creator of the show Breaking Bad, he was interviewed on NPR a few years ago. And after talking about creating the character of Walter White, this high school teacher, and making him into a bad person, he started talking about his own atheism and his uneasiness with it. I want to read you a quote from the interview. He said, My girlfriend of 20 years had a great line that I always quote. She says, I can stand the thought that there's no heaven, but I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. Because where is Hitler then? You know, where is Pol Pot? There's got to be some kind of payback. Do you hear what he's saying? Gilligan sees injustice in the world, and he knows that there has to be a reckoning so deep in his bones that he's willing to betray his own atheism to make room for the existence of hell. And so we listen to Amos with all his language of good and evil and judgment, and we're uncomfortable. My friend Sid Druin says the reason we're uncomfortable with this is that most of us design our lives to avoid big, sweeping moral judgments about the world and ourselves. We're tolerant and open-minded because we're afraid of conflict. We're hurt, but we normalize the bad things that people have done to us. Divorced parents who don't celebrate holidays together is just the way it is. We settle on numbness because we're afraid to feel any sorrow that we can't fix. And we minimize our own harsh thoughts, our hurtful comments and selfish actions. We minimize them as a bad mood or a bad day or a difficult circumstance, so they shrink. But they never go away, like a line of browser windows at the bottom of a computer screen that pop up into our minds at the worst times. So in short, we curb our desires for things like justice and goodness and truth because we don't want to deal with the sharp edges of our broken hearts and our broken world. But as I said our first week together, the the minor prophets break through our numbness. The message of Jesus and the prophets afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. The Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel puts this issue beautifully. He says, we ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we rarely grow indignant or overly excited. But the prophets disdain those for whom God's presence is first comfort and security. To the prophet, God's presence is a challenge, an incessant demand. God is compassion, not compromise. God's justice, though not heartlessness. The prophet's word is a scream in the night. While the world is at ease and asleep, the prophet feels the blast from heaven. The reason prophets like Amos grow indignant and see God's presence as challenge and justice is because they understand what evil is. And the only way to understand evil properly is to properly understand good. Because evil is good, deformed, and corrupted. Maybe the prophets sound judgmental to us because they're asking us to have a dream for the way the world should be and not just a plan for the way the world is. A vision for undeformed and uncorrupted good and not just a plan for the evils of tomorrow. Martin Luther King Jr. was once asked, when will you be satisfied with America? In a hot August day in 1963, this is how he responded. He said, we refuse to believe the bank of justice is bankrupt. We have a legitimate discontent for freedom and equality. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters 
and righteousness like a mighty stream. King quoted Amos 5, 24 as the benchmark for the way things ought to be. And he was not shy with his longings and his desires. And in chapter 5, God shows to the prophet Amos that the only way to truly be about justice in the world is to seek the Lord and his goodness and to hate all evil. The central question in the quest for justice is, what does it look like to seek the Lord? And that's what question is taken up in Amos 5. So first we're going to look at how Amos 5 shows us not to seek the Lord, and then quickly we're going to see how to seek the Lord. So Amos spends much of chapter 5 telling us how not to seek God. He does this by pointing out God's judgment on his people's idolatry and injustice. And rather than seeking him, they run away. First, Amos tells us that they run away from God and don't seek him by false worship. It matters where, why, and how we worship. So first, where? We see this in verses 4 through 6. He tells Israel not to go to these three ancient sites of worship where they had a habit of worshiping, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. And the reason is because those places were not designated by God for worship, and the way that people worshiped there was not the way that God had commanded. They seemed to be the right place. There are places where Abraham, their, their, their ancestor, had worshiped, but God condemns their worship in those places. God cares about where we worship him. And this holds for us still. If I was preaching this sermon a year ago, I'd probably say something like, this means that you can't sit at home in your pajamas and stream a worship service and call it church. But I can't say that anymore uh, because not every church is gathering together the way that we used to. And as things are opening back up, we are going to have to do the hard work of redeveloping our habits of going to church. Church is not just a building. It's a body of people that requires a preset time and place to meet so that we can worship together. Second, how and why. Well, later in chapter 5, in verses 21 through 23, Amos tells us that it matters how and why we worship. He says that God hates and despises their feasts, sacrifices, and songs. All of these look perfectly fine from the outside, but they have rotten motives behind them. He's saying we can't just go through the motions and say the right things and call that worship. There must be sincerity of heart. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God only accepts your worship if you feel sincere. That's not what I'm saying. That's just emotionalism. All of us are wired different, emotion, differently emotionally, and God knows this and he understands that. Sincerity in worship is more about truth than feelings. It's about having an awareness of our own badness and a desire for God's goodness. I'll say that again. Sincerity in worship is about having an awareness of our own badness and a desire for God's goodness, a desire for his goodness. I want to give you three quick applications of what this means. First, gospel sincerity means that coming to things like RUF or church shouldn't feel like a duty all of the time. It should be a delight some of the time. Second, it means that worship isn't about us. It's not about how great my offering is or how emotional I get singing. Worship is about Jesus, adoring Jesus, seeing him as more and more beautiful and believable. Third, gospel sincerity applies to choosing a church or a ministry. Our choice of ministry or church should be content-driven rather than style-driven. Who we are worshiping, how God is portrayed in songs and in the sermon is more important than how much we like the music or the feel of the place. I know this is challenging. If you'd like to talk about it, I'd love to get together and answer your questions and just listen to you. Um, go for a walk or when things open up to get coffee. But here Amos is asking us to examine our motives in worshiping, that it's not about the gifts I bring to God, 
but how I bring them to him. And so it's not that hard for us to see how Amos moves from our habits during a worship service to our everyday lives and the way that we relate to others. One of the consistent themes in the Bible is that our formal worship spills over into our informal living. Or I've heard it put the other way, the opposite way, how we treat others reveals our opinions about God. How we treat others reveals our opinions about God. So in verses 7 through 15, Amos is taken up with the issues of injustice, of how Israel mistreats others, the issues of injustice and oppression and evil. In verse 7, Amos says, God's people are turning justice into bitterness. That's what the word wormwood, it's a, it's a very bitter root or herb. And they're dishonest. They're trampling on the poor by their lack of generosity and a system of taxes that forced the poor to be, become rich people's slaves. And so it's not hard for us to see, it's not hard for us to see how this applies to our social situation today in America. Look, I need to say this, America is not Israel. Glenn Beck is wrong. America is not a Christian nation. We are not ruled by God's laws like Israel was supposed to be. The people who claim America is a Christian nation are sloppy theologians. And yet there are many Christians in America who think that America um, is equal on par to Israel, um, ancient Israel. And they are dreadfully wrong. And they've done much damage in the name of Christianity because of their Christian nationalism. And while America is not like Israel, as humans, we are still responsible to God. Through Amos, God is asking all of us to do a personal justice inventory. How do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? Do we sacrifice for others? Do we take things from others that are not ours? And not just material things, but emotional things, sexual things from others that aren't ours. I love how Tim Keller frames this. He says that the life of justice that God calls us to is a life of pursuing radical generosity, universal equality, significant life-changing advocacy for the poor, and corporate and individual responsibility. That's a mouthful. I'm going to walk through that. He's saying what, what God calls us to first in the church and then going into the world is first radical generosity. Secular individualism, our culture, says that your money belongs to you. And socialism says that your money belongs to the state. The Bible says that your money belongs to God, who then entrusts it to you. So it's not yours to begin with. You are free then to use it as a tool to bless others. So a question for you to consider, are you radically generous with what God has given you? Second, universal equality. Biblical justice requires every person to be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect regardless of class or race or ethnicity or nationality or gender or any other social category. Why? Because every human bears the image of God. We are to treat others not, based on the, not on the basis of their character or their behavior, but on the immutable reality that they bear the very image of God. So question for you to consider, do you treat every human with equal dignity? Or do you treat some types of people different than others? Third, biblical justice requires significant life-changing advocacy for the poor. Amos takes this up in chapter 2 and shows that one of the facets of the wickedness of Israel is that they were stealing from the poor and they were calling it good. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and the poor. And this word translated consideration means believers are to pay close attention to the weak and the poor, seeking to understand the cause of their condition and to spend significant time and energy to changing their life situation. 
question for you to consider. Is your life animated towards advocacy and care for the poor? Or are you only focused on increasing your own station in life? Are you climbing the rope for yourself or are you lowering the ladder for the poor? And finally, Keller says that biblical justice involves corporate and individual responsibility. The Bible says, yes, we are responsible for our own actions. And yes, we're also responsible for one another. So questions, do you make excuses for your own sin and failure? Or do you take responsibility for your actions? And do you make excuses for others? Or do you see your life as inextricably tied up in the well-being of others? Friends, this slays me. My life is far from what God requires of me. Maybe this cuts you too. And while none of us are as bad as we could be, none of us are as good as we must be. Amos vividly summarizes the rampant injustice of the 700s B.C., and also today in chapter 8, where he compares our actions and our lack of action to a pile of rotting fruit in the sun. Wasted fruit left to rot. That's what God is saying through Amos. A life of injustice is a life wasted. And that leaves us all in the same place. Verses 18 through 24, Israel was waiting for the day of the Lord, thinking that it would be a time for their vindication that when the Lord came, he would lift up Israel and crush all the other nations. But because of their idolatry and their injustice, because of their false worship and unrighteousness, God says here that he promises that the day of the Lord will be a day of inescapable judgment. A life of injustice is a life wasted, and that leads to a future of darkness. So what do we do with this? In verses 18 to 27, Amos tells us, that the answer is to seek the Lord. The answer to this is to seek the Lord. How? He says, by seeking good. Verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The context of this statement is our worship. Everyday worship involves a careful and constant concern for justice and righteousness. So it's not surprising then that Martin Luther King Jr. saved his harshest criticism for white ministers who resisted the civil rights movement of the 60s. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, King wrote, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. In King's mind, the church is not merely a thermometer that records the ideas of popular opinion, but a thermostat that transforms the morals of society. So it was primarily the black church that led the civil rights charge the strongest opposition to racism our country has ever seen was Christian, a deeper and truer form of Christianity that arose from careful meditation on scriptures like Amos 5:24. The lesson of MLK is not just that we should go and do likewise. It's also that we cannot hate evil and love good without the power of Jesus. You see, true justice is a fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in someone's heart. Jesus hates suffering. He hates injustice. He hates evil so much that he came into this world to experience it, to defeat it, it, and someday to wipe the world clean of it. Jesus didn't come into the world as a rich man at the top of society, but as a poor man in the bottom of society. And it's only as you know Jesus as the one who took the punishment that you deserve for your idolatry and injustice that you can then be sent out into the world to work for the justice of others. 
He lived the life of justice you cannot live and died the death of judgment you deserve so that by faith, his death becomes your death and his life becomes your life. See, we don't do justice to get right with God. We can't. You can never be good enough on your own to save yourself. Jesus didn't come the first time to bring judgment to us. Instead, he came to bear judgment for us. I'll close with this. Um, It's a little like uh, the story I heard about a bird hunter who was hunting with his friend in a wide open barren land of South Georgia. And while they're bird hunting, he saw far away on the horizon um, a cloud of smoke. And soon he could hear the crackling of fire. And a wind came up and he realized the terrible truth that a brush fire was advancing his way and it was moving so fast that he and his friend couldn't outrun it. And so this hunter began to rifle through his pockets And he took out his backpack and he turned it upside down and he emptied out all the contents and he dug through it and found what he was looking for, which was a a box of matches. And to his friend's amazement, he took out a match and he struck it and lit it and he threw it on the ground and he lit the ground immediately around them and lit this small fire around the two of them. And soon these two men were standing in a circle of blackened earth waiting for the fire to come. And they didn't have to wait long. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and they braced themselves And the fire came near and swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched because fire cannot pass where fire has already passed. Friends, the day of the Lord is like this brush fire. Amos is clear. We cannot escape it. But if we stand in the burned over place where God has already judged, then we will not be burned. As the death of Christ is that burned over place. On the day of the Lord, you can be in one of two places, on your own in that field or huddled in the loving embrace of Jesus in that burned over place. Jesus took all of the exile, all of the fire, all of the darkness of that day of the Lord so that he can set us free to worship him and to work for his justice in the world. And all of this is yours by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the book of Amos and confess how difficult these words are for us to hear. Lord, we, uh, we try to minimize these harsh realities in our minds, but you open your word and lay them bare for us to see. And Lord, I pray for my friends as they consider this. Um, Lord Jesus, would you show them yourself, the one who is just, who bore injustice on our behalf, so that you might animate by us by your spirit to work for your justice in the world. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, hear this good word from your Father in heaven who loves you. May the love of God the Father, and the grace of His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen.